Welcome to Off the Deck. I'm your host, Steve Carrera, and each episode I sit down with a member of the water polo community to speak with them about what helped make them successful in the world of water polo. In this episode, we sat down with Clark Witherspoon, formerly of Stanford Water Polo Club. If you enjoyed the episode, do me a favor, leave a five-star review or share it with your friends. And if you want to support the show, you can go to offthedeckpodcast.com and donate to the program. Thank you very much. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Off the Deck. Uh, I have the pleasure of being on the phone with Clark Weatherspoon. Uh, he's based here in San Francisco, Northern California, most recently coach at the Stanford Water Polo Club. Uh, before that, he was in Marin and also at Santa Barbara Water Polo Club. has been coaching for about uh, 20 years. So uh, really excited to have you on the program, Clark. Thanks for being on. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Steve. Yeah, no worries. Um, so this is uh this one is kind of a unique conversation because you're really focused and have been focused primarily on the age group side and I think um, that's a topic that's that's a really important topic we've talked we've touched on high school and college and and beyond but we haven't touched specifically um, in length about age group so a lot of things to sort of unravel here in the conversation but why don't you start off by uh, telling everybody how you got involved uh, coaching the sport of water polo uh, you know, so I started coaching water polo in my senior year of college. So I went to UCSB. I played at UCSB for, for two years, my first and second year. I say played, uh, loosely because I actually was injured almost the entire time, mm. uh, that I was on the team and it was a really wonderful experience, uh, being at Santa Barbara. I loved the team. I loved the coaches. I felt like it was just magical yeah. uh, being a part of it. And anyone that's played division one water polo knows, you know, the amount of time you have to put in um, and being hurt all the time, you know, being sort of right on the cusp of playing, but then not playing. I decided to, to stop as a sophomore. Um, I was taking 21 units. I actually remember I was taking a class called Seaborne Empires, with <laughs> Professor Francis Dutra. It was a great class. Uh, there was a ton of reading. I remember I had this big exam coming up and saying to myself, you know, do I study for these classes and really go for it? Or do I, you know, sit on the deck injured? And I remember making the call to, to stop playing. Yeah. Um, you know, and then when I stopped playing, I still, you know, was deeply connected with the team. I'm still good friends with a lot of guys I played with. Um, and then I actually took my third year abroad. I went and lived in Egypt for a year and then came back. And I realized actually during that time, how much I missed water polo. You know, I mean, I had been around the pool basically, you know, every available day that I could from when I was like five. Yeah. And then that year of being gone, I was, you know, I don't think I went to a pool the entire time I was in Egypt. Um, and I came back and I just really wanted to be involved. And, you know, so I talked to, um, talked to Joe, O'Brien and talked to Chucky, uh, Chucky Ross and was like, Hey, you know, I want to get involved. And they were like, yeah, come out, you know? So came out to the Santa Barbara water polo club and, you know, started coaching on a Tuesday night at campus pool and never really looked back. Wow. That's really cool. And I mean, 
Egypt is such a interesting place to pick to go abroad. Was there any particular reason? Yeah, you know, it, it was really random. Um, I had taken, you know, this is this is going to sound like such a bizarre story, but <laughs> one of my mom's friends, one of my mom's friends when I was growing up, um, was a language teacher. She taught she taught French and Russian, and her husband taught French and Russian. And um, so my mom, you know, convinced my older sister and me and my younger sister to take Russian. I, I you know, I mean, I, I wasn't particularly interested in like Russian as a language, but I took it, I took it for six years. Wow. Basically from like, yeah, I took it from, from seventh grade uh, all the way through like my senior year of high school. I don't speak Russian, um, but I took classes for a long time. And when I got to college, I wanted to take another language and I didn't want to take a European language. And so I was looking around, one of my good buddies was taking Japanese. Um, and I was just like, I'll take Arabic, you know? So I just signed up for Arabic as a, I think as a sophomore at, at Santa Barbara, I took Arabic classes, which was really cool. I was in a class with like five people and our professor was from Cairo. And so someone came to the class and was like, Hey, you have this study abroad program. Does anybody want a flyer? And I was like, yeah, sure. I'll take a flyer, you know, kind of like whatever I took it. And then the professor was just like, you got to go, you know, she just started, you know, she started bugging me like, do it, do it, do it. So I applied and then, you know, I got into the program and, and then I, I had quit water polo, you know? So like my main sort of gig at Santa Barbara was up and I was just looking for something to do. And I was yeah. like, yeah, sure. I'll go to Egypt. And it was awesome. It, it changed my whole life. It was a really profound experience, and uh, it's a super cool place. Egypt is 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 a magical country, awesome people, really, really, really beautiful place. And Cairo is like a huge city, very, very fun. Yeah, that's really cool. I actually played with a a few people on the East Coast against and with uh, some Egyptians. They they had some they had some mm-hmm. pretty good players. Actually, um, you wouldn't think yeah. that like yeah. that part of the world had. Uh, good water polo but they have some really good athletes playing water polo um, yeah you know there's a couple of clubs in egypt that guys uh, that guys play at that are that are good yeah. you know and i didn't get involved in it but i know about those clubs and obviously i've talked to people here in, in the u.s and and yeah they definitely produce players over there yeah for sure so you know we've been we've been in this lull now you know we're in uh September, end of September, you know, we've been six, seven months in this pandemic. Things are starting to open up, you know, slowly but surely. Um, but, you know, we're still not at full force. We haven't had any competition. They just canceled Junior Olympics. And I know, you know, we talked a little bit off air that you're, you know, you're spending a lot of time with your family and focusing on your on your on your day job. And um, and so you haven't been really coaching, hadn't really been in the mix. You were going to take a t- time off anyway, basically. Um, but before you left, you know, I know you and I have had some conversations on pool decks, you know, what have been your thoughts, uh, about, you know, the state of water polo, you know, that you, you kind of left and, and now that you sort of have this like 30,000 foot view of water polo, mm-hmm. you know, what are your thoughts about, you know, anything, high school, college, age group, national team, etc. Yeah. Well, you know, for me, I, I've really dedicated so much of my coaching career to age group, yeah. you know, to, you know, to really like 14 and unders. Um, I've coached, 
you know, some 16s, some 18s. I've coached, um, uh, you know, beginners, right? So there's definitely been some years where I've, you know, coached five and six-year-olds, which has actually been really, really cool. And it's always amazing to, you know, to see a kid that you coached when they were six, you know, playing pretty high-level water polo. I can think of a couple guys who are playing college water polo right now that I was part of their first water polo practice, which is, you know, very, very cool to think back on. Um, You know, and I feel like when I look at water polo in the U.S., I feel like we have to dedicate a lot more effort time and resources to age group water polo. Hmm. And, you know, I say that for a couple of reasons. When you look at guys who are playing in college and you look at guys who are playing on the national team, a lot of them were good age group players. Right. And a lot of them had good age group coaches. Now, obviously there, there are guys who, you know, grow a ton who start as freshmen in high school, who have a great high school coach and they're super athletic and things kind of go from there. But I think those guys are actually kind of the exception, right? When you, when you look at college rosters, when you look certainly at national team, it's guys who by the time they were freshmen in high school, they had a pretty good understanding of water polo, right? They knew the, they knew pretty solid fundamentals. They had played at a high level. They had actually been playing or at least training with high school kids as middle schoolers, right? They had done, you know, done things that, that would prepare them to make a big jump, right? It's a big jump to go from 1400 water polo to playing high school varsity, right? You're playing against kids who are 18 or, or, you know, potentially 19 years old in high school, right? So to go from playing 14s high school varsity, it's a big jump, right? And then obviously going from playing high school varsity to college is another big jump. And then it's a huge jump from college to international. Right. And so I think we, we sort of assume as players that you're going to be teaching high school players a lot. And I just don't know from my time as a coach, you know, how much water polo you can teach to like a 16 or 17 year old and expect them to one, like learn and understand it. And then two, to be able to make huge jumps in college, obviously it happens. But I think in terms of teaching kids, solid fundamentals, teaching kids, the importance of training, how to approach training, how to relate to your teammates, how to relate to a coach, right. Um, How to get committed, how to make a choice to play a sport, right. Like I know we're in a time where, where there's a lot of discussion of athlete specialization and how people are getting overly specialized. You know, I think, in eighth grade, it's actually kind of time to specialize, right? Like, yeah. you know, for me, I don't know if you should be playing six sports as an eighth grader if you're planning on being any good at any of them, right? Like, yeah. and that's different if you're LeBron, right? Okay, so if you're 6'8", 260, and you're like the top, you know, the top recruited uh, uh, football player and the top recruited basketball player, it's really different than if you're, you know, someone who's going to have to work super hard to get time and get reps and get coaching and all that stuff, you know, playing two or three sports in high school, even playing two sports in high school is plenty, you know, especially if they're different sports. Yeah. You know, if you're playing baseball and water polo, that's, that's plenty. Right. I don't know that, that you need to be doing more than that. Right. So helping kids understand 
how to do all those things actually takes a lot of time. And I felt that that was one of my biggest tasks as an age group coach was to help kids go from beginners in water polo, right? Kids who, you know, signed up for whatever reason to actually helping them become water polo players, right? There's a big difference between someone who signed up to play and someone who is a player. Yeah. And I, I spent a lot of time at that 14 under level, you know, as well. And, and I think you make a really good point that really that area in their life, just like, you know, you and I could relate to as a 14 year old, you know, boy, 13, 14. Yeah. It's like the bridge between, are you serious or are you just doing this for fun? And you know, that, that age group level 14 and under really is like, you know, the tipping point for a lot of kids um, because I agree, you know, the, the hardest time to start water polo is when you're like 13 or 14, you know, like you can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, of course you can, yeah. but yeah, that's really where things are really difficult because some kids are growing, some kids are not there. It, so that insecurities are there and they're there regardless. Once you start in high school, you know, the, that's like kind of our generation, you know, like we were talking earlier, you know, we're both, you know, in our early forties. Right starting your freshman year was the norm from our generation down, you know, that's just not possible really anymore. It's very unique. Um, Yeah. You know, I mean, if you're going to be, actually go on and then I'll. Oh no. Well, I was going to say like, you know, specifically if there was, you know, I I know you're, you talk about, you know, where to put the emphasis, but is there any, is there anything you've thought of over the years that could be specifically, you know, that the organization USA Water Polo, any other organization can help uh, specifically into putting more resources into that. Um, is there any idea that mm. you've thought of? Yeah. You know, I think coaches education has to be at the top of the list. Yeah. Right. And making sure that we really limit water polo brain drain. Right. Um, we have, we don't have a ton of college players, yeah. right? But there's there's a lot of them, right? There's a lot of them. Um, it's not basketball, right? It's not football. Mm-hmm. But but there's still lots of people who play college water polo who never become coaches. And there has to be some way to be able to get those people who have played college um, to want to become coaches and take time to teach players, yeah. right? But also take time to train those people on how to teach players, right? Because the small number of people who do become coaches are relying almost entirely on their experience, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I very quickly realized, and this may be your experience as well, but when I became a coach, I realized how much I didn't know about water polo, right? Kids would ask me questions and I would be like, uh... We're doing this because I did it, yeah, you know, yeah. like we're doing this because I saw someone else do it or like we're doing this because I think it's cool or like it's hard. Right. But I didn't I didn't actually know the answer to those questions. Yeah. Right. Or kids would see teams doing other things. And I didn't have like the philosophical understanding to know like why one coach would do something and and I would do the other. Right. Or like why I should do the same thing. So investing time and actually teaching people how to teach the game what different approaches are to the game, how to relate to and communicate with people, especially with young people, you know, because talking to talking to say 10 to 14 year olds is very different than talking to, to 
15 to 18 year olds, right? I mean, even talking to a 15 year old is quite different than talking to an 18 year old. Yeah. Right. So sort of helping people understand, you know, basics of water polo knowledge, how to run a practice, how to talk to parents, how to construct really what's like a learning experience for people and get them to commit, you know, to some amount of time, a year. I mean, I think a year is not enough, maybe like two to three years, but thinking about that sort of holistically, because as the sport grows, the amount of educated coaches and referees is not keeping pace with its growth, which on the one hand is a good problem, but then on the other hand, it challenges your ability when you, you know, like when you have a big athletic kid who comes in and says, I love water polo and you don't have anyone to teach them or engage them. And so they don't, they don't have the experiences that are going to keep them in the sport that they're having in other sports. That's where you can actually lose kids in the growth. Yeah. Not, not only, not only do you have, sorry to interrupt, but not only do you have uh, not enough referees and coaches that are educated and you don't have enough of them just in general. I mean, we don't, we have a coaching shortage and a referee shortage no matter what, whether good, bad or indifferent, you know? And so, you know, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point. And I think just looking, you know, reading about your background and and having known um, a little bit, not I'm not going to pretend that I know a lot about what you do coaching or otherwise, but, you know, it seems like you've made your life around that middle school age. And so it's not just like a coaching thing you're seeing it from a different perspective as well. And, and one of the questions I had sent to you was like, where do you see your role as an educator? Um, and, and the reason I wanted to ask you that was because, you know, I, I see that, you know, you're, you're the head of middle school of middle school at uh, a school in San Francisco. Um, mm-hmm. you, you've been a, a Dean in terms of, uh, for equity and inclusion um, all in San Francisco. You've been a teacher um, and then also obviously you're, you know, the, the head coach or you were the head coach at Stanford for, for 14 under boys. So are you wrapping all that sort of what you're seeing in the classroom, what you're seeing on a daily basis? What are you, how are you bringing that into the coaching realm and vice versa? What are you seeing on the pool deck that maybe you're bringing into the school? If, if that's a yeah. not too serious of a question. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, I, I mean, it's interesting because because those things, those aspects of my professional experience, they really inform one another. Yeah. Right. You know, coaching is teaching. Okay. You're not teaching someone to speak a language or you're not teaching someone to understand, I don't know, history or foreign policy or grammar, but you're teaching someone a game. Right. And that game is the system. You're also teaching people how to relate to other people, how to communicate with people. You're teaching people about commitment, about sportsmanship, about community, right? I mean, like that's what a coach does. It doesn't matter what the game is, but you're you're an educator, right? So for me, I feel really fortunate to have worked in some schools that were very good schools and to also have some really great mentors and bosses and colleagues who could teach me things about how people learn, mm-hmm. right? Because different people learn different ways. Right. I, you know, I think about one of the things that I experienced as a young athlete was I had really great coaches as a young athlete, but I also witnessed people really thinking that everybody learned the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I think our practice of education and our 
empathy and understanding towards people and our knowledge of brain science tells us that people learn differently, yeah. right? People's brains process information differently, right? Like, you know, like here's a really good example. You know, as a young coach, I would watch other coaches and they would use whiteboards like nonstop, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, so I was like, okay, I'm going to use whiteboard. And I would use a whiteboard with some impact. I don't know that I was using it super well, especially like if you're in a timeout. A timeout is, for me, I think not a great time to use a whiteboard yeah. actually from like a learning perspective. And I can explain why. But a timeout, you have like, a, you got like a minute, right? Between quarters, you have like two to three minutes, especially in 1400 games where you're playing, you know, sometimes in a condensed format, your breaks can be short, right? So kids are tired. They're having trouble breathing, right? You know, like they're feeling a certain way about something that's happening in the game. They're coming to the wall to get instruction and you have to get them to both listen, right? And they're, and they're like partially submerged in water, right? So they're like the physical environment of listening is already challenged, right? So you have to get them to listen and then understand and then execute the thing that you want, right? So with a whiteboard, what I, what I realized actually from talking to one of my players, because I would draw plays on the board and he would always do the wrong thing, like without fail. Yeah. To the point where, you know, I mean, I was like pissed. I was like, dude, why? Like, what's going on, man? I'm like drawing these plays and you're like always in the wrong place. And he came to me one day, I think at the urging of his parents and came to me and was like, hey, you know, I got to tell you, like, I'm dyslexic. Wow. And I just kind of looked at him and I was like, you know, like at first I was like, okay, like I'm with you. And then he was like, so you were talking to me the other day at the game about like going to the wrong place. And I just want you to know that like when you draw things on the board, like I can't read it. Wow. That's an eye opener. You know I mean? It was a game changer for me as a coach to be able to be like, oh, like, wow. Okay. Like kids actually, when you're talking to them, just because you've said it over and over again, or you've like yelled it at them or something like that, it doesn't mean that they're understanding. Yeah. Right. So you have to actually talk to your athletes and figure out how they understand the information and how can you teach it to them so that they get it right. So like in, in, in teacher speak, like an education jargon, that's like differentiated instruction, right? This idea of like different access points for different people, different modalities of learning to be able to get, get people to actually learn stuff as opposed to even do it, right? Because someone could do something, but that doesn't mean they actually, or like, it doesn't mean they know it, it just yeah. means they're doing it, right? And there's like a huge difference actually between those things. You know, so, so like part of what I did in that situation was I started to think about if I want to use the whiteboard, when do I use the whiteboard? And I started using the whiteboard like during practice and talking kids through the plays in practices like weeks before we were ever going to use them in a game. Yeah. You know, so I would do it in practice and then we would like walk through it on the deck and then walk through it in front of a cage without defense. And that, you know, and like really, really, really go through it. And then I started like making handouts for kids and giving them the handouts, right? Like for some coaches, they're going to think that, yeah, okay. Like that's maybe obvious what you would do. But I think as a young coach, I don't think that that's necessarily obvious. One. I don't think it's obvious. And then yeah. Two, I don't think it's obvious at all. No, I, I think you're, yeah, you're hitting on a lot of things that, and I'm, uh, again, sorry to interrupt, but I think you're hitting on a lot of things yeah, no, that, no, no. that 
really only us teachers, you know, are, are keenly aware of, you know, because that's mm-hmm. what you study when you're becoming a teacher is you start, you know, talking about how do people learn? Exactly. And, and when you start bringing that into your coaching career, or when you start kind of, when you're doing both at the same time, you really realize, and so, and even as a experienced coach and teacher, you know, like you slip. I mean, I slipped many times in terms of like, oh, you mm-hmm. know, this is my fault. I did not give them all the things that they needed so that every single person understood. And so right. when you're doing, when you're doing video work, that's not just so that you could show people a bunch of plays on the video, but in, from my perspective, I'm like showing the people who learn that way because, you know, so there, other people may already yeah. understand yeah. it. The video is really for a mm-hmm. segment of my, the population of my team, which I think a lot yeah. of people don't get that, you know? Yeah. You know, and also too, like as a player, you, you don't actually see the whole, or like many players don't actually see and envision the whole pool because you're swimming, yeah. right? Like you're swimming, you're interacting with a person as a coach, your perspective on the game is completely different. And then when you watch video, it's different again. Right. So thinking about like how you can help people to understand and learn and then integrate that knowledge and apply that knowledge for me is teaching. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a practice, a practice is a class, right. And a session, right. The fall session is, is a term. Yeah. Right. Like it starts off just like a class would start off. You walk in, hey, everybody, what's up? I'm Clark. I'm the teacher. This is the syllabus. Right. You know, so sometimes, you know, like uh, for like my top group in 14, I would say to them, this is the syllabus. These are the exams. Right. So these are the big tournaments we have in this term. And we got a final. Right. The final is this big tournament at the end. And then winter, you come back, different term, different curriculum different tests but as the as the teacher of that session you have to have a really clear sense of what's the journey that these athletes are going to go on how am i actually constructing learning experiences criteria evaluation points so that these kids know where they're going their parents know where they're going it helps you with with team selection in terms of helping kids understand okay why am i not on the a team or on the b team but it also helps you with like goal setting you know, when yeah. kids would come to talk to me about high school and where they could go to high school, I would help them be able to sort of make that decision based upon the criteria that we have in our program and yeah. be able to say, hey, look, like, what are the goals you have? What do you want to do? Like, what is water polo to you? Right. Because if it fits in this area, then these are the kind of questions you need to ask. What kind of student are you? Do you want to do a lot of homework? Do you not want to do a lot of homework? Right. Um, and those are things that like, you know, that I think are really important. And, you know, during my time at Stanford, that was like, I would say was one of the biggest successes is really developing what I would call like a 14 and under curriculum, mm-hmm. right? That was, that was like replicable that when I left, I could hand to somebody else and say, if you don't want to do anything, you like, you could do this, right? With a very sort of clear sense of why one would do anything right it's based on my sort of opinions and my background and conversations with lots of people but it's a system that could be done again and i think you know clubs that have that are successful right so if you look at 
if you look at any age group program in our country that's like long-term successful, they have that. And the coaches are stable, right? And there are also coaches who, who I would argue could coach at any level, right? Like some of our, some of our best age group coaches could coach at any level. You could all, you know, like when you look at um, particularly like European football, you know, so soccer, when you look at these youth academies that they have, some yeah. of their best coaches are the coaches they have, you know, 10, 12, 14, right? And they stay there. Actually, I think in the interview that, that you did with Ricardo Azevedo, he talked about this, right? Yeah. You have these high-quality coaches with younger kids. They, you know, they run effectively a water polo school, right? You know, so to, to kind of come back to your last question, I'll wrap up this answer, is like – um if the U S had more water polo schools, right. That were really about player development in total, say for 10 to 14 year olds, I think the quality of the game would continue to rapidly grow. Mm -hmm. Right. Rather Um, than everybody sort of doing their own thing, having at least some sort of an outline, not follow this drill every day, but just like, here's the outline and as you're talking, you know, about this, it really kind of like light bulb went off in my head because, you know, I'm thinking, you know, you're talking about coaches education, which I think has become a topic that's ramped up in, over the last two or three years. And I do think it's it's coincided. I'm, I'm not saying it's totally be, it's not because of this, but it's coincided with guests that I've had on my podcast talking about coaches education kind of going like, where do I go and how do I learn? And one of the reasons yeah. why I started the yeah. podcast was because I wanted to learn from other coaches. Like the knowledge isn't being right. shared and you hear that, that theme across the board from a lot of guests, but rather than saying, okay, we're going to educate coaches. It would be interesting as an idea to educate the program directors and the people who run the clubs and let them sort of dictate how the curriculum gets handed down to their coaches. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think it needs to be both. Right. So, you know, so sort of speak to this, right. Like, like for me, I've become a big soccer fan. You know, I mean, I love watching pro soccer world cup, you know, I mean, it's amazing. Right. And if you look at that system, it's a global system, but, but every country has a style. Right. Like, and then every club has a style, every coach has a style and they're kind of known for that. Right. Like I was reading, um, I read, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson's book. He's, um, longtime manager now retired of, of, um, Manchester United. Right. And, and, um, talking about sort of like the culture of Manchester United and how that is different, you know, from a Liverpool or from a Manchester city or from, you know, I mean, all these different clubs have different fan bases, different cultures, different styles. You see that in USA water polo. And I think it's actually really good. You know, I think Stanford has a style and a culture. SoCal's got a style. Six eighty has got a style. La Miranda's got a style, right? Like different field, different, you know, different kind of approach to the game. I think that that's really healthy. At the same time, providing people with some like baseline fundamental knowledge that is not like guarded, right? Right. Um, but is like readily accessible, readily available, I think is really important. And then having, you know, I think also like 
Ricardo talked about this too. I know John Abbey's working on this. Having more like coaches, like summits and conferences and opportunities for coaches at both the highest level and coaches at the beginning level to communicate and to share knowledge. This, this, this is so critical because the amount of time that it can take to learn fundamentals, ultimately it harms the athlete. Yeah. Right. So for me as a coach, as I was learning the amount of time it took me to learn, it meant that I wasn't able to teach the kids that I was coaching as well as I could. Yeah. Right. That's obviously the course of being in any career, right? The longer you're in it, the better you get. But if your foundational training is stronger, the people who you're working with are served more effectively, more readily and quicker. Right. Yeah. Um, And it also can sort of like downplay what I think is like, you know, sometimes in water polo, a, a, um, you know, I'm not sure exactly of the word, but I feel like, you know, there are, there are people in the sport who are really, really open in terms of sharing information, you know, collaborating, um, you know, doing team training, you know, I mean, I would not be where I am as a coach were it not for, you know, some of the coaches that I've met taking the time to explain to me why they're doing what they're doing or, sending me emails or, you know, I mean, just like giving me knowledge basically. Right. Um, but then there's also some people who, you know, just can't be bothered. Right. And I feel like figuring out a way, you know, both culturally to make it so that there's more information sharing, but to also create specific opportunities where coaches are, are given information that they just must have. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, because club administrators, once again, a club administrator needs to be someone, if they're going to be the one who is like disseminating or, you know, purely responsible for, for like dissemination of information and training of coaches, they have to view that as a priority of theirs. Right. And they may not. Yeah. Because they you have know, a like, million other like things going ad- on. I mean, they got to delegate that. They may have. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they may have other things going on. They may be thinking this is just an opportunity for me to make some money. They may be thinking, oh, you know, the coaches got it right. You know, there's a lot of different, a lot of different ways that clubs get administrated for better or for worse. Yeah, no, I agree. And so if you have an administrator who is like really on it and really cares about coaching and really cares about, you know, player education, coaches education, they're going to invest time in that. But if they don't either have time or they're not, necessarily bothered it can have a huge impact and and you see that at different clubs you know i mean different clubs have very different coaching you know cultures and systems i mean that you know you asked me a question about being at stanford and i'll just kind of segue into that like like one of the things about you know being at stanford was that it it was a huge learning opportunity for me as a professional right but also as a coach and as a fan right so you know so you you go to stanford it's a beautiful facility right i mean it's just you know phenomenal four pools you got this beautiful stadium um you know two huge training pools a dive pool and you see just as a fan like you see amazing athletes right so like you come down on the deck and you know katie ledecky is on the deck. Yeah. You know, she's, you know, she just finished her workout. Um, Simone Manuel's, you know, uh, she's finishing her practice. She's walking off the deck. Um, 
you see Brenda Villas just, you know, she's cruising around. She's talking to JT. JT and Susan are there. Uh, you know, Coach Vargas is hanging out. You know, Coach Vargas's office opens, and, you know, Peter Varelis walks out. You know, I mean, it's amazing. And as, uh, you know, I mean, there were there was a session where, you know, I'm the head coach of the practice, and everyone else at the practice has, you know, played professional water polo. You know, uh, uh, Peter Varelis and uh, Peter Hudnut are both, you know, doing NBAs at Stanford, and so they're coaching in the club. I mean, you know, just, just the opportunity – to be able to talk to those athletes and just and just ask them questions yeah. about their experiences or ask them to talk to a kid to hey you know can you take these three kids and just work with them on this for 30 minutes and they're like yeah no problem to be able to have that is is invaluable it's one of the one of the most amazing experiences i've ever had just in terms of being around high level athletes different genders different backgrounds who have all achieved in really amazing ways um, um yeah and one thing you know, if, like I, if I could from yeah really yeah, quickly yeah. from the outside looking in you also you know you're also working with different aspects of coaching and teaching because you have teachers and administrators mm-hmm. who are coaching you know we have yeah. i know that there were some people who are athletic directors or assistant athletic directors that were coaching in the club. You got someone like Brian Krutzkamp, who's been there for for years, who is coaching at the club. So it's not just like, hey, what drill can I run? But how can I, you know, manage this group of kids even outside of the pool? You know, like I would assume that you're learning just a lot about how to run a program slash classroom slash team slash organization just in conversations you're having in passing. Yeah. You know, so for instance, kind of like the next level up, right? So, so as the 14-hunter coach, I, I'm also interfacing with Brian Kruzkamp at Sigurd Hurt. I'm yeah. talking to Jack Bowen at Menlo. I'm talking to Terry O'Donnell at St. Francis. I'm talking to Colin Mello at Bellarmine. I'm talking to like a ton of public school coaches, right? Because actually like most of the kids in that program are going to public schools, right? They're going to Palo Alto High School. They're going to Woodside High School. They're going to Mountain View High School. You're talking to a lot of people. You're watching a lot of programs. You're recognizing that kids are coming from all over, like like the Western Bay Area, right? Um, you know, say sort of like that San Francisco to San Jose kind of corridor. Yeah. Right. Uh, kids are coming from anywhere in there, including um, out to Santa Cruz, right? So you know, also talking to like Marcelo at SoCal, right? You know, there's all these there's all these coaches you're talking to I would go to a ton of high school games and just kind of dialogue with people about things that they were doing understanding that that like one of the biggest goals for those kids was to play high level high school water polo right so when they when they graduate from Stanford 14s I want all of them to be able to go play at these places and play right away right um you know so so just the opportunity to be able to learn and to be able to to ask questions like I was going to say in the summertime, um, you know, like the Stanford guys would go like a little bit later because, you know, a lot of them were like working or had internships and stuff like that. And so, you know, so we would run our 14th practice and then um, that would get done. And I would just go sit down on the bench and watch the Stanford practice, you know, and be able to see what those guys are doing and talk to coach Vargas and talk to coach Barnea. 
uh, to be able to watch JT and Susan run their practices. There were a lot of times that the women's national team would train at Stanford and then get to talk to Coach K. You know, I mean, those are, in terms of just being in a learning environment where, where you get to watch people who have achieved at the highest levels of their sport and just get a sense, okay, why are you doing this? Or like, how is this working? Um, what's this kid like? Or like, what are the things that kids that are coming out of my program are not prepared to do in your program? That yeah. was actually one of the questions I would ask a lot of coaches. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, like I'm sending you kids, but are they any good? Are they ready to go? You know, if there's things you want them to do, what are they? Yeah. And I'd get really great feedback. And so those are things that, you know, that I recognize are actually really quite, quite um, unique, but I think more coaches should get from the aquatic communities that they're in. And I'd say, you know, kind of the last thing on that is having the opportunity to play against La Miranda, to play against 680, to play against Shaq, you know, to play against Diablo. You know, those are, those are, those are good teams, Yeah. you know, and they're producing players and to have to play against those guys every other week, you know, and do collaborative, you know, the number of times that I would call Monday at 680 and say, hey, you know, can you come down or can we come up and see you guys and, you know, scrimmage those guys and, you know, beat the crap out of each other and do six on five and then be able to see each other at tournaments and, you know, be cheering for each other, you know, like like a number of times the guys at 680 would walk by us and be like, hey, guys, good luck. You know, I mean, to have that kind of collaborative and competitive opportunity is awesome. Yeah, no, and I think I, every club should want something like that. No, I, I definitely see a huge difference between NorCal and SoCal water polo. You know, I mean, it's just it's in pockets. I'm not saying it, I'm not being I'm not trying to overgeneralize, but in pockets, you see a lot more collaboration in Northern California right. than you do in Southern California. Right. And a lot of that has to do with the with the proximity of pools and clubs in Southern California. Mm-hmm people imposing mm-hmm. on your quote unquote pool or your area down there means they're imposing on your livelihood. Right. You know, up here things yeah. are more locked down in terms of, you know, who's where, um, you know, in Marin County, there's like three water polo clubs, you know, that that's pretty much it. That, that's all you could do. Uh, if you're in the Bay right. area, like, you know, San Jose area, like you were talking about, you know, your Palo Alto, you're pretty much playing for Stanford. I mean, there's, there's not really that well, many more choices, right? I mean, yeah, you know, I think one of the other things that you know that we actually tried to do, which I think has worked, you know, to varying degrees, is to really kind of help kids also understand like what kind of water polo experience they want to have. You know, Stanford's a big club, right? And for me, as a as a you know former college player, as a competitive swimmer, competitive water polo player in high school, all that. I really loved being at a big club. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you know, being at a big club is not for everybody. Right. And there's a lot of smaller water polo operations in that area that, you know, like we would talk to kids and sometimes kids would come and play with us for a while. And sometimes they would leave, you know, because they were like, you know, I don't really want to be in a huge deal. I just want to like play with my buddies, yeah. you know, or like, or I want to just, you know, like have practice, you know, twice a week and, not really do any travel, you know? So we also really, I think, tried to pay attention to the fact that, that when you join a big club, you're signing up for a very particular experience and it's not for everybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, even, even the other, you know, sort of bigger clubs in the area, I think that they also try to do a good job of communicating clearly with families about 
what it means to join one of these larger clubs and how that's just very different than being in, in something that's much more local. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, but yes, I think that, that like between the big organizations, we do see value in Northern California of, 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 you know, doing common training of talking to each other, of sharing information because, you know, I mean, like one, it's more fun. Two, I, you know, I think a lot of the coaches up here are very cool. I mean, I like a lot of these coaches personally, and, yeah. you know, talk to them, text them, stuff like that. But also, like, it it makes your club better, right? Like, if you're playing bad teams all the time, it's not good for you, yeah, right? You, so and you, and have I, a, you have a vested interest in your competition being good. Yeah, and I think I, I, I may have framed what I said a, wrong in the sense that it's not that you guys are the only game in town. I guess what I, I guess right. what I was referring to is that you wouldn't see the level of coaching collaboration down there as you do up here. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you got Crude's Camp, Bowen, you know, Terry, all coaching, you know, similar. And I, I know some people have broken off and done their own thing, but like ultimately they've been working at Stanford at some point. You know, you would never see me. Segusman and Ormsby working, you know, like it, sure. it just, sure. it just, what didn't work that way. You know, we were all doing our own thing and, um, mm-hmm. you know, we're all trying to create our own little bubble of, of success. And so it's, it's just, it's just different. And, uh, I think I see, I see the value in that in terms of educating your coaches and having long-term coaching development. Um, you know, I'm still skeptical on some parts of it, but that's because I did right. Orange County for basically my entire coaching career. So, um, I want to, yeah. I, I want to well, move into, or yeah, go on, go on. oh yeah, I wanted to move into one topic that I didn't send a, a, in the email, which was, um, the, the collaboration that you're doing with, with John Abdu and he's been really, you know, really, uh, you know, intentional about creating, awareness for diversity in, in water polo and aquatics as well. And, you know, you sort of, you join like a, a council, um, through USA water polo to address diversity in, in, in water polo. And I don't know if I'm framing that exactly correctly, but how do you feel about that? You know, how did you get involved? What do you hope to bring to, to the table? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. You know, I mean, I think that, Diversity, equity, and inclusion in water polo, I think, is really important, right? Like, we live in a multiracial, multicultural, multiethnic society, yeah. right? There's, you know, I mean, America is a, it's a unique place. Like, you just, you got people from everywhere here, you know? Some of them just got here, you know? Some of them have been here thousands of years, right? Like, there's a lot of different folks. And... And the opportunity to be able to open up a sport like water polo to everyone, I think is really important because you want the sport to be as good as it possibly can be. Right. Like, and on a national level, you want to be able to compete for and win gold medals, right. Which means you need to be able to find the best athletes, train them and get them to compete. Right. Which means you have to create a culture and cultures where those people want to come they feel welcome, they stay and they thrive and they pass that on, 
Yeah. Right. And I think like aquatics generally in the United States has been a segregated experience. Right. Um, and that is something that I think a lot of aquatic sports are looking at and trying to seriously address one, because they actually want it to be for everybody, which hasn't always been the case. Right. So if you look at the history of, of access to, you know, pools and beaches, they have followed, you know, the same segregated pattern that, you know, that have existed in society, right. There's, there's, there would be no reason why that wouldn't be true. Yeah. Right. Like it wouldn't be like every other part of the society would be segregated, but aquatics wouldn't be yeah. right. Yeah. So, so, you know, the, the, the call to really look at ways in which we can structurally impact USA water polo as an, as a governing body, but also how we can impact and support um, clubs, coaches, administrators in, in opening their doors finding athletes, welcoming those athletes and supporting them. I just think is really important. You know I mean? And I've seen the sport grow a lot. I've seen a lot more kids come into the sport in my 20 years of coaching, which is really exciting. Um, and, you know, I said this in like an interview that, that we did when we launched this, but, you know, by and large, a lot of the coaches and people who I've interacted with, with water polo have been, if nothing else, like racially curious, you know, like really wanting to kind of know more about folks and really being interested in, in seeing the sport grow and being excited about seeing teams with, you know, players of color. I mean, that's been, that's been my, my overall experience. I know that that's not, that that's not always the case. And I know that, you know, like any, like any sport, like any institution, there have been, you know, problems along, you know, lines of race, gender, ethnicity, sexuality. I mean, all those things happen, right? When you, when you bring people together, there's going to be conflict, right? So, so, you know, but for me, I think for, for USA Water Polo to, you know, to take this on and push forward, I think is really important. I'm excited to do the work. I'm excited, you know, for what that, what that task force is doing. Um, you know, and I hope we find more athletes, right. You know, I mean, I'll tell you just, you know, kind of a quick story. My sophomore year in college, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, we're doing weights, right. So mid morning we have weights and, and like the Lakers are training at UCSB. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, you know, they're playing at like, at like the Rob gym, which is right next to the varsity weight room, you know, and everyone on the team is, you know, super excited. This is, you know, this is 90 to 99, right? So this is like, this is like a high time yeah. for the Lakers, yeah. right? And, you know, so like Robert Ory walks in the weight room, you know, and starts lifting with us. My friend Reed walks up to him and is like, what's up, Rob? <laughs> um, and, uh, and, you know, and then all of a sudden Shaq walks in the weight room. Okay, Shaq is, I don't know if you've ever seen Shaq. But Shaq is like, he is he's, so large. He's huge. You know, I mean, like you look at him next to NBA players and, and like he looks big, but you forget that NBA players are giant people, yeah, yeah, right? They're yeah. huge. Shaq, Shaq's, Shaq's like arm is bigger than my leg, right? <laughs> the guy is gigantic. 
and uh, Kobe is like down the hallway shooting in the gym. Everyone's really excited, right? So, you know, Shaq is, you know, doing his workout in the weight room and we're all trying to be like really chill, you know, as though, you know, Shaq is always there lifting yeah. with us. He's just another stand. <laughs> yeah. You know, like he's just another gaucho doing his thing. And, um, and then, you know, Shaq, you know, like he looks up between his reps and he's like, Hey, like what team is this? You know? And someone's like, Oh, this is water polo. And then uh, Shaq, you know, kind of like he lifts his arm and makes like this fake, um, he makes like a pump faking motion. And he's like, Oh yeah, I know water polo. And you know, everybody starts laughing. And then like, he looks across the weight room and he looks right at me and he goes, Hey man, are you on the water polo team? I said, yeah. And he goes, all right, all right, brother's playing water polo. <laughs> and it was just like a cool moment, yeah. you know, of like connecting with this athlete who obviously at the time was, you know, at the top of his game. And I mean, everybody knows Shaq is like a master communicator and, and um, entertainer. Yeah. Right. But yeah. like the other thought that I, you know, that I had in that moment besides, you know, it's not, besides laughing and having a good time was like, what if we got players the size of Shaq playing water polo? It would be game changer. It would be right. We'd never like, lose. You know I mean? Like what if we got athletes like Christian McCaffrey playing water polo? Yeah. yeah. You know I mean? I, I actually coming out of Stanford one day, I talked to Christian McCaffrey like right before he got drafted. He was just standing outside in the pool. I just walked up to him and was like, what's up man? Blah, blah, blah. I talked to him for two minutes. Right. But like, what if you, what if you got guys like Christian McCaffrey or Shaq or Kobe or, or, you know, Patrick Mahomes playing water polo? Yeah. Right. I mean, obviously those guys are going to be drawn to play those other sports, but at the same time, the more that, that we open the game up, the more that we get kids to pools, right. You know, like we were talking, I think before you started recording about, you know, sort of access to pools access to pools for people of color, for people who don't have money is a huge issue. Yeah. It's a huge issue. Yeah. Right. The idea that like one, you can't pay the fees Two, the pool may be located too far away from where you live, or it could be located in a neighborhood where you don't want to go yeah. where like, you're really, you're really scared to go. I mean, I'll be honest. For me, as I've traveled for water polo, I've gone a lot of places in the United States for water polo. And there have been times where I've like gotten off the plane and gone to my rental car and like driven to places and like been nervous. Yeah. You know, being like, man, I hope my car does not break down or like I'm not stopping in this gas station. Yeah. Right. And like that's, that's in, that's in zip codes with many different um, incomes. Right. So, I'm not talking about like the rough parts of town. I'm talking about just places that are far from where you tend to see black people. Sometimes it's like, okay, is this, is this safe? Like, where am I right yeah, now? Yeah. You know? And so that's one of those things where like we, we as a sport do need to look at, you know, how we actually help people get access to our sport. You know, if the, if the water polo team is training, you know, far from a bus stop, if a water polo team has, you know, fees that are so high or if swimming is not accessible, we just, we just miss out on kids. No, right. I, I, I and agree. it can send a message that, that we don't want people, even if like, like the accessibility piece can say to people, we don't want them. When in fact, 
maybe we're asking ourselves, why aren't people coming? Yeah. Right. But the barriers are actually quite significant. Right. You know, I mean, for me, I only started playing water polo because you had to swim really, really well. Like I joined a swim team when I was five. I was on a swim team with seven people and two of the kids on the team were my siblings. Yeah. Right. And my first swim coach, you know, or like my first swim coach was amazing, you know, so to be able to, to have learned all the strokes by like seven to be a super confident swimmer, to love being at the pool and then making a friend whose dad was a water polo coach that changed the whole course of my life. But at no point would I have been able to even play water polo had I not had this really strong swimming background. Yeah. And we got to really pay attention to that as a sport. Yeah. And I, I think for those who are skeptical about, you know, cause you know, there's going to be skeptics about pool access and things like that. I mean, there always will be, Right. you know, there are two examples. One that's affected me just by moving from Irvine to uh, Marin which is not necessarily that it's like, you know, obviously we, we live in a, a good neighborhood. Irvine was a good neighborhood, but there's no community pools around where I live in Irvine. You can go to a community, I could walk to my community pool. I could just jump in. I had the key. There was no problem here. I have to either pay a yearly fee uh, or I, or I can't get in. And so that's just the one example. And the other example, which you may or may not remember is a school in the Bronx called Lehman college. Back in 98, 99, mm -hmm. 2000, and a little bit after, they had a water polo program. And mm. they're deep in the Bronx. Deep, okay? And, you know, if you've been to Yankee Stadium or if you've been to that area, it's a rough, yep. it's a rough yep. neighborhood for sure. And, been there. Been there. you know, the, the population, the makeup of that team was mainly African-American. They grew up in that area. That's their local school, their, you know, their local college, and that's where they were going to go. And that program got dropped pretty quickly, but they have a 50 meter pool. They have like a great indoor facility, but no programs to show for it, you know? And it, it's like, because a lot of people who live in that immediate area didn't want to get on the train, go to the pool, pay the whatever fee it is and get in. Um, and so like, I agree that the barrier to getting in and to opening the sport up is, as we said before we started recording, it, it in some ways is financial. And if the coach on the deck needs those registrations to pay their bills, it's really hard to just say everyone welcome, you know, even if you can't afford it, that it's almost impossible, you know? And so we're hitting this like rail of, you know, where do we, we talk about growth of the sport. We talk about inclusion which I of course agree with, but if we're not willing to put some dollars behind getting that going, that wheel turning, how can we make it happen? I think that's the challenge that we have now, um, you know, trying to expand into the, the, the inclusion part. Yeah. You know, so last thing that you have to have the money behind it. Right. And then you also actually need some of those players um, who have reached the top of the game to be coaching those kids. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, that's one of the things like having Brenda coaching young kids is invaluable. Yeah. Right. She walks on the deck and she says, I was seen a player of the decade. I'm an Olympic gold medalist. Like those kids are going to listen. Yeah. yeah. Right. And they're going to listen in a way to her very different than they're going to listen to me because she's just achieved things I've never achieved. Yeah. Right. 
And so to be able to, to get people like Brenda who, who are phenomenal coaches, phenomenal people, great educators, mentors to kids, rather than having those people shooting for being the third assistant at a college program or running in their eyes what is an elite high school program. I think those are sort of the two big pressures for high-level players is how can I get a college job or like how can I take over some high school program and like turn it into something amazing. Yeah. And not that not that either of those things is like is is like bad. Those things are great. But if we want to grow the sport, some of those people actually have to come down and coach little kids. Yeah. And they've got to really dedicate time because they're the people who can actually chart the course forward for those athletes. Yeah. You know, they can say to them, Hey, I was your age. I know exactly where opportunities lie. Obviously it's going to be different for each person, but this is the road you can take and it can make a huge difference. You know, and it's, it's also not about just the personal achievements that that person had. I mean, I think, you know, you look at the program like commerce, you have, Latinos coaching Latinos, you know what I mean? Like you have mm-hmm, mm-hmm. role models that look like you and have gone through your yeah. experience. And I think that that is an extremely invaluable, important piece. And, you know, I, yeah. I was thinking about this last night, actually, and I don't know how to f- exactly say this, but you know, you've, you've, we hear a lot of about institutional racism and, and we're in this kind of inflection point in our society where things have split and, you know, like we're kind of really it's it's at the forefront of what we're doing, what we're talking about in, in every aspect of our life. You know, um, I think you would hopefully agree w- with that. I mean, it's 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 consuming us in 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 ways mm. that are good. Um, but have you ever reflected on the fact that you're an African-American man who is coaching basically mainly Caucasian boys and that you're their like first experience with a black man in a leadership role like that and what kind of impact that might have on them long term in terms of being inclusive and being like respectful of diversity in whatever organization they yeah, end up later yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean I think that that actually or like for me in my career has been a really interesting point of, of engagement with athletes. And it's part of why I've continued to do it. You know, there's a lot of kids. There's a lot of parents that I've spoken to where I am the first black man that they've actually had day-to-day contact with. Right. So, and by that, like, I don't mean, uh, or or sorry, Um, by day-to-day contact, I mean someone who is, is um a leader one um is a mentor someone who is in some ways a professional peer right um and someone in authority but then also someone who they um, talk to in a really casual open way right so for instance like with kids you know and and you know this as a coach you spend a tremendous amount of time with your athletes yeah right so so like you end up having all kinds of conversations with them about all kinds of things. Right. So I'm like the first black uh, adult that a lot of those kids have had like wide ranging conversations and dialogues with. Um, I'm also, you know, sometimes that person for some of, for some of the parents, sometimes for other coaches. Right. And that has opened the door. I think for a lot of those people through those, you know, through those relationships 
to think sort of more critically about what even it it, it means to to experience institutional racism, right? And I think like for us as a society, where we get really bogged down is we think that racism only sort of manifests on the level of like widespread violence or like people being really mean or like burning crosses and things like that. But I think when we talk about institutional racism, like what, what we're really sort of looking at is like structures that benefit people who are seen as white, right? And so, you know, I mean, like that could be anything from me showing up at a water polo tournament and, you know, the person at the gate being like, hey, you know, like the basketball tournament's like next door. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. To, to um, you know, someone, you know, calling me like an N-word at a tournament. Yeah. Not that that's ever happened to me personally, but I know that that's happened to people, right? So, so like, so there's a really wide range of experiences between, between those. Right. And when we talk about a structure, that structure just puts into our mind a set of beliefs that people who look like me do certain things, believe certain things and should only be allowed to do certain things. Right. And that could be like, you know, that could just be the difference between believing that people look like me only play basketball and don't play water polo. Yeah. Right. Like, and I, and I don't know that anybody sees that as like a really negative thing, right? But it but it comes from the system that we all interact with. And so when it comes to like skepticism, I think really what's super important is just being open to like the stories that people are telling about their experiences as, you know, being a non-white person playing water polo yeah. or, you know, talking to women who play water polo or coach water polo. We're talking to people who are members of the LGBTQ community, like what's their experience of playing water polo, yeah. right? I mean, different communities have different experiences, not being part of dominant groups. And like, how do we understand how do we, you know, co-create and how do we transform so that the sport actually is the thing that, that everybody believes it is. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it's difficult because often when we look at these things, we like, we deeply personalize them, right? You know, like we assume that that it's like one person's fault. You know, it's like, oh, like this person said this, like they're a bad person. Like we should all expose them as being bad. And we have to look at the fact that like the system that we're in that's consuming our society and our debate, it's been around for hundreds of years, right? right? Like we're all born into that system and figuring out how to change it takes a lot of investment and energy and self-reflection and challenge right i mean it's not it's not easy yeah and i think one of the things about being in the water polo community has been like being able to talk to especially coaches like being able to talk to some coaches who are actually doing a lot of stuff in terms of educating themselves working to transform their programs doing things to like recruit more kids of different races even at their school you know i mean i think like like when you look at like water polo pictures in a lot of schools, maybe from seventies and eighties, a lot of the players are white and like talking to coaches now, like even just their sense of who plays water polo, quote unquote, how to get beginners. I think it's expanded a lot. You know, like when you walk into a school, you're not just looking for the kids who look aquatic. Yeah. yeah. Right. Whatever that means. You're looking for kids who like don't have a sport, kids who look kind of athletic and are like willing to talk to you. That could be anybody. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think even that understanding has changed a lot in the last like 15, 20 years. Yeah. Well, I, I think what you guys are doing is it's really 
you know, kind of blazing a trail here and to put it out in the forefront, which I think is important. But I think just bringing up that point about you being in your leadership role at a club like Stanford is an important piece to, you know, what you have already been doing and what USA Water Polo and a, and a club like Stanford, whether intentional or unintentional, is doing. I mean, they're, that is a really important piece, I think. And getting more people, more minorities into coaching or being involved in the sport, even whether it's conferences, like you said earlier, or any sort of seminar, I think would be really helpful uh, to the grand scheme mm-hmm. of things. So I know uh, I'm keeping you kind of a long time here and I, I just have, you know, two more questions and then I know you got to go and I got class and everything, yeah. but um, yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, uh, who have who have been your biggest mentors or influences in your career, uh, water polo wise? Yeah, you know, I, I've thought about this question a lot. Um, I would say in total, well, you know, there's kind of two answers. So in total, I would say it was my high school coach, Roger Necton, was was for me one of the most important people I would say in my whole life. Um, you know, just in terms of, I knew him from when I was like eight or nine years old and, you know, he coached me until I was 18 and, you know, just his whole philosophy of coaching, the way that he relates to his athletes, he was not someone who was, who was a yeller, right. You know, like he always was about calm, clear communication, really high standards, um, meticulous planning, um, you know, did I think a really good job of creating a healthy culture of competition? He also did a great job of connecting us as players to the alumni of our program. Right. So he started coaching at, at my high school in the, in the sixties. And what, sorry, what high school? What high school? Yeah. 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 Uh, So I went to Phillips Exeter Academy in New Hampshire, which is a boarding school. And he started coaching there. Yeah. You know, it's like he started coaching there in the 1960s. Okay. And, and, you know, retired in the last decade and, and, you know, for him to be able to bring alumni to our practice or talk to us about the experiences that he had and the standards that he had, yeah, it was really uh, formative for me. And as I've gone through coaching, I've relied a lot on those messages that I got from him as an athlete. And, you know, some of the times where I've like really wanted to understand, I've called him or sent him an email and been like, Hey, you know, like, what did you do? Yeah. His answers to those questions were actually like profoundly humble and like, in some ways really surprising, but also like very authentic, you know? So I would say if I had to pick like one person who's really had a huge impact on me as a coach, I'd say it's, it's Roger Necton. Um, and he also is someone who never played water polo, oh, wow. right? So he was someone who, who learned the game and understands communication, motivation, and community building. He's yeah. a master at those things and did that for, you know, generations of athletes at our school. Um, you know, and then I would also say, like, I've been really fortunate, you know, to be able to coach alongside a lot of really good coaches um, in general. And I, you know, I spoke to that earlier, but I don't think you can downplay that. I think coaches have to take time to learn from other coaches, watch other coaches, really be humble enough to, you know, to have people critique your coaching, mm-hmm. you know 
players included, players and parents, right? There's, you know, there has to be a place for that. I, I, I don't know that you want to have, you know, like parents with, you know, clipboards, of parents, you <laughs> yeah. know, like tracking. That could be but a nightmare. Like, you know, but I, yeah, you know, but I, but I actually do think it's important, like, to get structured feedback from parents and from players, you know, to hear like, what, you know, what am I, what am I doing wrong? What's not, what's not working. I think I've actually had some of my greatest breakthroughs from that. Um, you know, but yeah, being in a coaching community has been just as critical, if not more critical. Yeah. Um, and finally, uh, last question is what advice would you give to a person starting off? And I know you've sprinkled a lot of different things throughout the conversation, but you know, if you could sort of just summarize, you know, a couple of things that you think would be good advice for, for someone starting off. You know, I'd say the biggest one is that maybe there's two or three, but the biggest one for me right away that comes to mind is that it's not just about winning. Yeah. Right. You're, you're, you're coaching to help people in their lives. There's so much power that you have as a coach to impact someone's life positively or negatively. And I think every coach has to really embrace that and really, really think deeply about the things you say to kids right? Because they remember, you know, and, and for me, I mean, I, I, that's my biggest thing, you know, I mean, I look back on teams I've coached and successes and failures that I've had in terms of wins and losses, but also in terms of just connections with athletes and the things that are way more important to me are, are those connections. Um, you know, so one, it's not just about winning and then, you know, it's really about the people. And then, Maybe secondly, I think you have to, you have to really dedicate yourself to learning the craft and take your time before you get in the spotlight, you know, like a lot of people want to start coaching 18 A's or start coaching college. But I think that like, you know, learning how to win a game as a coach, actually, you know, it's like, what do you do in a situation where you're down by one with a minute and 30 seconds left in a game, how are you supposed to win that game from, you know, from a, from a coaching perspective, right. From a tactical perspective, if, if everything goes the way that you want it to go, how do you win that game? Right. So, you know, those are things that you actually got to learn on a Sunday morning with five parents in the stands and someone's little brother kicking a soccer ball against the fence. Like, you got you to gotta learn in those situations before you can get to the prime time. Yeah. Because, I, because that's actually how you get there. You know, I mean, I think about, you know, getting a team to win junior Olympics and how many losses, how many coaching errors I had to make in games, both big and small, to actually get to a place where I like, actually understood what it took to win a tournament like junior Olympics. Yeah. It actually takes a long time to do that. And, I would like every coach to, you know, to be in the game long enough to be on that journey. And actually, you know, I'll kind of end on this. When my team won junior Olympics in 2000, you know, you know, 15, I think that was, you know, that was one of the best groups to go through Stanford club, right? They, you know, they ended up, they came in third, I think the year before and they won the next year. And then, then they were in the finals every year for the next four years and 
won a bunch of those, including yeah. I don't know last year. You know, I mean, like those guys were, those guys were really, really good in terms of um, their commitment to excellence, their care for each other. You know, I mean, they did everything you would you would want a team to do. I mean, we had a kid break his hand in that fourteen under summer and the response of the kids on the team on the group text is like one of the most inspiring things I've ever seen from any group of people in terms of one supporting a kid and then saying, we're going to do this for you. And like, not in a cheesy way, but in like a real authentic way, that was awesome to be able to win that tournament and to actually get feedback from other coaches to have the other coaches say, we're happy for you because we know that you've worked hard for this for me said a lot that, that the coaches that I've been coaching against actually saw me fail and they knew how much I cared and they knew sort of what it took. And I think that's one of the things I had never really thought about in terms of like reaching that, reaching that level as a coach. I hope every coach gets the opportunity to both have that journey to get those wins, but also commit to the process and not just want to, you know, start on third base because I think you actually, you lose something if you don't start, you know, I mean, my first high school job, I was coaching in a four-lane, shallow, deep pool where the goalie was standing on the bottom with a suit out of the water, and like <laughs> I had a great time doing that. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, I mean, that was that was actually one of my best coaching experiences because it was a huge part of my journey, and I'm still connected to a lot of the players on that team. So yeah. I hope everybody, you know, just embraces the process and yeah. you know sees where it takes them. It's a life. It's if done right, it's a life commitment. I look at somebody like Ricardo and how much time he's put into it and how much he's learned and how much joy he's probably derived from that. If I can get to that place, I'll be counting myself as really fortunate. 